1896, Fritz Hoffmann LaRoche believed the industrial manufacture of medicines could play a major role in the fight against disease. And so he founded Roche. Today, Roche is the world's largest biotech organization and the number one investor in research and development to help people live longer, better lives. Roche's 90,000 employees in Ireland and around the world make a sustainable contribution to society through innovative medicines, diagnostics, personalized healthcare, and digital health. We are many, working as one. Roche, doing now what patients need next. Hello, and welcome to the Answers for Cancers podcast. I am your host, Anne-Marie Fay. And I'm Michelle Matthews. Together with some of Ireland's leading experts, we want to unravel what it truly means to have cancer. From consultant diagnosis to treatment plans, from managing your symptoms to supports available, we have it covered. So whether you're a nurse working in oncology or have been personally affected by cancer, this podcast is for you. Good evening, Dr. Harold. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to have you here to talk to us about renal cell carcinoma and bladder cancer. Um, if you don't mind, we might start with renal cell carcinoma. And if you could, would you mind um, just explaining what renal cell cancer is and how common it is in Ireland? So renal cancer or kidney cancer is cancer that arises from the kidney. Um, it's the, seven most, the seventh most common cancer overall in Ireland, looking at our most recent statistics from the National Cancer Registry. It's more common in males than in females, so it's about the sixth most common cancer in men and about the tenth most common cancer in females, and it accounts for about 3% of invasive cancers that are diagnosed annually here in Ireland. Um, the median age at diagnosis, so that means the age, uh, um, the average age at which it's diagnosed is between 65 to 69. And overall, the five-year survival in kidney cancer has actually significantly improved both internationally and here in Ireland. If you look at the period from about 1994 to 1998, it was only about 48%. And that's significantly increased to about 60% over the period of 2009 to 2013. And as these figures are obviously um, a little bit behind, I would suspect that that five-year survival is very significantly increased even beyond that estimate. That's brilliant. And what are the main risk factors associated with renal cell cancer? So similar to lots of cancers, smoking is a major risk factor for kidney cancer. Um, it's also associated with an increased BMI. Um, and then there are chemical uh, exposures that would increase the risk. So things like arsenic compounds or cadmium compounds, this obviously relates to people working in those industrial occupations. Ionizing radiation is a risk factor for renal cancer. Uh, patients on uh, dialysis with end-stage renal disease have a greater risk. And then there's also uh, conditions like polycystic kidney disease, uh, which would significantly increase the risk also. And what would be some of the main signs and symptoms associated with kidney cancer that people might experience? So kidney cancer can actually be silent and more than 50% of the kidney cancers we see are incidentally detected, incidentally detected. Um, and that usually happens on a CT scan or an ultrasound that's done for some other reason. A lesion might be identified and sequentially followed um, with ongoing imaging and then there may be an indication for a biopsy. Um, the classical triad that we learn about in medical school of uh, blood in the urine, a pain usually on one or other side and a 
and a mass or a, a, a lump that can be felt um, by putting a hand on the stomach, um, that's probably less common, but commonly patients would report blood in the urine as a presenting feature. Um, weight loss can also be a presenting feature or just generalized um, malaise or feeling unwell and more fatigued. And then we also talk about what are called paraneoplastic syndromes. So these are syndromes that don't relate directly to the cancer, but we know are associated with something like kidney cancer. Um, one of these would be a very high calcium, um, which is a, a paraneoplastic syndrome that's associated with kidney cancer. Okay. Thanks. That's really easy to understand. Um, do you mind if we just go through the stages of renal cell cancer and what is stage one? So um, when you're talking about stage one and stage two kidney cancers, these are quite early kidney cancers and they're confined to the kidney themselves. And um, we would call stage one renal cancer a tumour or a cancer that's less than seven centimetres in size and it's confined to the kidney itself. And there's a very good five-year survival associated with these earlier uh, kidney cancers of about 95%. That's brilliant. And moving on from that then into stage two, how different is this to stage one? So the difference between stage one and stage two is largely related to the size. So stage two kidney cancers are still confined to the kidney, but they're usually greater than seven centimetres. And here the five year survival or the number of patients um, alive at five years is again extremely good at about 85%. That's good. It's really promising. Um, what about stage three? So stage three, a stage three tumour is more locally advanced but it hasn't spread more distally away from the kidney so this would be where you have cancer or tumor in the major veins or in the adrenal glands which sit on top of the kidney and um, if the tumor is still confined within a layer that surrounds the kidney called gerata's fascia um, or if you have one lymph node nearby to the kidney so it has to be in the area or the region where the kidney is and again the five-year survival here is quite good at about 60 percent but you can see that as you move through the stages sequentially the five-year survival or the number of patients alive at five years does um, decrease as the stage increases. And finally, do you mind explaining what stage four would look like? Um, so here um, we're talking about a, a tumour or a cancer that is more extensive both locally but also that has moved beyond the region where the kidney is. So the tumour tends to be beyond this, this garotis fascia that surrounds the kidney or more than one lymph node is involved. And the five-year survivals that are sort of traditionally quoted here were about 20%. But again, given all of the recent innovation in kidney cancer, I think those numbers will sequentially improve in the years to come. That's brilliant. Um, Moving on from that, we often hear the term clear cell and non-clear cell renal cell carcinoma being used. Can you explain what this means, please? So the term clear cell is a is a histological description or a description of what what is seen when you put the cancer cells under a microscope and it refers to the cells that make up the tumour or the majority of the tumour under a microscope and clear cell tumours account for the vast majority of renal cancers and this clear cell refers to the cells that make up that tumour. It accounts for approximately 75% of the kidney cancers that we see and it probably is the predominant tumour type that we see being studied in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Um, The other subtypes that are described and have been studied to a slightly lesser degree because they are less um, prevalent um, are papillary, chromophobe, oncocytoma and collecting duct tumours and then equally you may have a predominant tumour type within a cancer so you may have a predominantly clear cell tumour but there may be additional cells under a microscope and all of that is described by the pathologist after a patient has a biopsy. So for people with localised disease what are the treatment options available? 
So firstly, to just go back to how more than 50% of kidney tumours are incidentally detected, sometimes where you have a, a small tumour, um, surveillance alone may be sufficient in terms of managing that, uh, that cancer or that tumour, particularly if a patient is older, if the rate of growth of that tumour appears to be very slow, um, and sometimes that is an option patients will opt for. Um, if you go down the surgical route, uh, there is the option of a partial or a full nephrectomy, uh, which means removal of the kidney, either all of the kidney or part of the kidney. And obviously there's a number of considerations there because if you remove one of the kidneys, you need to have sufficient renal function in the remaining kidney for that to be an option. Often the size of the tumor will dictate um, what's appropriate. Um, and then when you're not pursuing surgical options, we talk about ablation. And what ablation is, is essentially destroying cancer cells with the use of different forms of energy. Probably one of the most common ones we use is thermal ablation, but others described include cryoablation and radiofrequency ablation. Um, and the restriction or the limitations of ablation is related really to the size of the tumour, and we would usually say tumours less than three centimetres are appropriate for ablation procedures. We often hear the term prognostic scores in relation to renal cell cancer. Do you mind talking to us a little bit about these? So there are two main scoring criteria that we use. Uh, one is sort of the Mozart or the MSKCC criteria and the other is the Hang criteria. Um, they both have different elements in them that relate in part to laboratory findings. So these are things like the haemoglobin, when we talk about someone being anemic, we talk about calcium levels, and we also talk about um, lactic dehydrogenase levels. These are things a patient would not be symptomatic of what we pick up. Um, the HENG criteria additionally looks at things like platelets, which are involved in clotting. Um, and then the other um, criteria that are common to both of those scoring systems are how long it is from the time of somebody's diagnosis to starting treatment, um, and equally how fit the patient is. Um, and what we do with the scoring system is we're able to characterize a patient's tumor into good, intermediate, or high risk and these scores predict the survival in each of these categories. And this is relevant because it gives us information about prognosis, but it also informs the best choice of systemic therapy for metastatic disease. And to just go to that point about the time from diagnosis to systemic treatment, in some patients with metastatic disease, so in some patients with disease outside of the kidney, it is appropriate to wait a period of time while they're under surveillance before you start systemic treatment. And the need for systemic treatment being less than a year is very relevant because this speaks to the nature or the aggressiveness of the tumour. Okay. And what are the treatment options available for patients with metastatic renal cell cancer? So there's a number of different classes that we talk about um, in managing metastatic uh, kidney cancer. So the earliest ones and the most common ones patients listening may have heard about are the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, so these are a form of targeted therapy that targets a particular pathway that we know renal cancer depends on for growth and for spread. Um, and these inhibitors block tyrosine kinases. So these are enzymes that we all have that lead to the activation of different molecular pathways by modifying proteins in cells. And we know that these pathways are involved with things like growth of the cell, spread of the cell, change in the, the, the behavior of the cell, and indeed cell death and what we call apoptosis. Um, and these were probably the ones that are, are most commonly known to the patients that, you're, that are 
listening. Um, and these side effects of these drugs have been one of the problems in using tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They have been associated with things like fatigue, diarrhea, high blood pressure, inflammation in the mouth, um, derangement of thyroid function and um, hand foot syndrome which is an irritation in uh, the skin that can be quite difficult to deal with. Uh, we traditionally were using sunitinib and we were trying to change the schedule of how sunitinib was used to try and reduce the toxicities and then later we had access to pazopinib which had a little bit more tolerability in terms of those side effects um, and early detection and early intervention are really important in patient on, patients on these tyrosine kinase drugs. Um, more recently, immunotherapy has started to play a really big role in the treatment of renal cancer. Um, and the most commonly used drugs that we talk about are checkpoint inhibitors. So we know that our immune system is made up of a number of different cells, including T cells and B cells. And through an interaction between the tumor cells and the T cells, we get activation of these immune cells or T cells. And over time, this interaction gets interrupted by signals between the cells. And as a result, the response of our immune system to the tumor cells reduces. So when we look at all of this different data, looking at tyrosine kinase inhibitors and the immunotherapy drugs in particular, what we've seen over the past five to 10 years in particular um, is sequentially improving outcomes for these metastatic or stage four renal cancer patients. Um, and interestingly, even though we're now moving into an era where we're combining immunotherapy drugs uh, two checkpoint inhibitors together or combining a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and an immunotherapy drug, we actually see an improvement in patients' quality of life in addition to the duration of um, that good quality of time. And would there be surgical options available for patients who have metastatic disease? So traditionally, we used to talk about this concept of a cytoreductive nephrectomy or removal of the kidney because there was data to suggest that if you did surgery on the kidney, it had an impact on the other sites of disease away from the kidney. Um, and then there was a large study done called the Carmina study, um, which people can look up. And it was a very simple study that asked the question about the role of surgery in patients with metastatic disease. To go back to those prognostic scores that we used, um, if this is particularly relevant for patients who have intermediate or high risk disease, because you would expect those patients often to have a higher burden of disease. But in this study, when they compared patients who either had surgery followed by sunitinib, that tyrosine kinase inhibitor that we've mentioned, or patients who went directly onto sunitinib, uh, patients who went directly onto systemic treatment actually did better. Um, and you could extrapolate that this might be because patients who have surgery um, take a bit of time to recover from surgery. And when you do surgery, it's a form of localized therapy in general, even though there was this prior data to suggest it might have an impact on other sites of disease. Um, and then there have been further studies like the Sure Time study, um, which again tried to answer this question um, about whether. Um, about whether surgery had a role to play and in general um, where there's a high volume of disease outside of the kidney our preference now is to go to systemic therapy particularly as the options in terms of systemic therapy are getting so much better. That's brilliant. You can really see the role of some of the clinical trials have changed the practice over the years. Absolutely. So, so previously up to about 2015, we would have seen very, very much sequential monotherapy. So that drug sunitinib or uh, pazotinib, um, followed by excitinib or everolimus, which is a drug group that we haven't quite spoken about just yet. Mm -hmm. And then again, we'd cycle through the different options that they hadn't had. 
Now we're starting to see newer drugs like excitinib being combined with the immunotherapy, as we have mentioned. And these pivotal studies that have been uh, released, um, you know, almost every year um, in recent years have dramatically moved that prediction of prognosis for these stage four patients beyond what we would have originally quoted. And certainly I think everybody treating renal cancer had patients who have derived very durable benefits from these newer treatments that are available to us. That's brilliant. And you did just touch on it there, but when do we see the introduction of excitinib? So before 2015, excitinib could have been used after the the earlier tyrosine kinases like sunitinib or prosopinib. Now um, the guidelines would suggest that when we are considering first-line therapy for metastatic disease, we should be considering combination of immunotherapy drugs or combination of tyrosine kinase inhibitors and immunotherapy drugs. And that's the space where we see um, the excitinib data. The pivotal study of excitinib was published in 2019 uh, and showed a very good and improved response in um, excitinib combined with pembrolizumab when compared uh, to sunitinib. Um, it does depend on, on the, the country in which you're practicing the type of access that you have, despite the approval by the FDA of different combinations um, in Europe, our access um, is restricted by approval and obviously here in Ireland by different reimbursement um, pathways. And previously in our previous podcast, we've spoken about uh, VEGF in relation to colorectal cancer um, and the drugs that we use in that setting. But we also hear it in relation to um, kidney cancer as well. Um, do you mind just touching off VEGF again and what exactly it is and how it's relevant in terms of renal cell carcinoma? So VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor is a protein that a number of different cells in the body um, depend on to stimulate the growth of blood vessels. So it's increased in tumours, but it's also increased in non-tumour cells. Um, and by targeting this pathway in kidney cancer, we can stop the growth of the tumour. VEGF is actually a target of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, and originally one of the drugs that was studied very early on in the treatment of kidney cancer was bevacizumab, which you we hear about used in the context of colorectal cancer. We also hear about it when uh, we talk about treatment for a lot of the gynecological cancers. And it was previously studied in other cancers where it's not um, uh, used routinely. Um, and then more recently, we have started to use um, uh, cabosantinib, which is an oral multiple tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And it targets uh, VEGF, but it also targets a number of other pathways like RET and MET. Um, and there was a pivotal trial released in 2018, which compared uh, cabosantinib to sunitinib, which would have been very widely used in the first line setting. Um, and we saw that there was a, a greater progression-free survival or um, a longer period of time when the patient's cancer on the trial wasn't progressing or getting worse. And then more recently in 2021, we've seen a study looking at cabosantinib and nivolumab. So that's the cabosantinib, this multiple tyrosine kinase inhibitor in combination with nivolumab, which is a checkpoint inhibitor. Um, and these were compared to sunitinib. And again, we saw a very significant advantage in terms of the progression-free survival um, and overall survival. But also interestingly, um, and this just speaks to how difficult the tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been for patients, um, even though cabosantinib and nivolumab represent a combination, the quality of life scores reported by patients were actually better on the combination. So I think in the first line setting, um, to summarize the direction we're moving in, particularly for intermediate and for poor risk, going back to those prognostic groups, we are looking at combinations 
um, either combinations of checkpoint inhibitors or combinations of uh, drugs like um, Exitinib and Cabosantinib with checkpoint inhibitors or the immunotherapy drugs. That's great. great. That was yeah. really clear. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Answers for Cancers podcast. Please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help. Also, if you can like and subscribe, it lets people know we're here. You can alternatively contact us on Instagram at the Answers for Cancers underscore podcast. And if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today, please email us at the Answers for Cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram. 